Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Jason, one of the guys on the team. So thrilled that you're hanging out with us today, whether here in Auditorium 1, over in Auditorium 2, or online today. We're so glad that you're worshiping with us at Fellowship Greenville. Uh, quickly to Auditorium 2, uh, I heard from my uh, uh, friends over there that my good friend, your good friend, Matt Rexford, who's leading worship over there today, uh, decided that he would include only in Auditorium 2 a nice uh, brass and uh, Winwood section. And uh, I know, I'm a little disappointed because Matt knows how much I enjoy when the brass and the Winwood section comes together to be able to do the things. He chose to do it over there with Johnny over here, and we're going to talk about it later, Matt. I'm a little disappointed. Thank you. <laughs> Speaking of Matt and I, uh, there's a new podcast that just came out here at Fellowship Greenville. It's the Jesus on Display podcast. It comes out regularly, but uh, once a quarter, they invite Matthew and I in to give you some information about important things going on at uh, Fellowship Greenville. And the newest episode, uh, What's Going On This uh, Fall, just came out a couple of days ago. Uh, so you can go to the podcast and listen to it. It's on YouTube. You can watch us as well. And uh, I just need to let you know it's about 30 minutes in length, and there's probably six to seven minutes of important information in that 30 minutes. The rest is we're just telling stories and talking. Like it's woven throughout, so you gotta hang with us the whole time. We don't just do the six or seven minutes and then get onto the funny stuff. We try to work it all in there for you so you'll stay with us, but if you're interested, give it a listen. I, uh, I'm so thankful to be able to come together and worship together this morning. One of the things that I've been praying throughout the course of this week is that uh, us coming together to lift our voices in praise through song, uh, studying God's word, fellowshipping with one another and serving one another, that all of those things would continue to be an encouragement to your heart and to your mind. And if you are a guest today, I've already introduced myself as Jason. I am one of the guys on the team and we're super thankful that you decided to worship with us at Fellowship Greenville. And we hope that you find this to be a place that is friendly, uh, but a place that makes much of Jesus and reminds you of his love for you. That is our heartbeat. Uh, if you do want to know more about us as a guest, or maybe you've been coming for a couple of months, you'd like to learn a little bit more about Fellowship Greenville, there's two things you can do. You can stop by uh, guest services out in the commons today. There'd be some friendly folks who would love to meet you and answer any questions that you might have about Fellowship Greenville. Also, uh, every month or so, we offer a 60-minute Taste of Fellowship Greenville. It's called Starting Point. It's on a Sunday morning. Our next one is coming up on October the 22nd. You can use the QR code in the seat, on the seat in front of you to get more information about that. Stop by Next Steps, also out in the Commons, to get some more information about that or go to our website. But I wanted to let you know that that's available because we would love for us, uh, to, we would love the opportunity to get to meet you and for you to learn a little bit more about us. And whether you are newer or you've been here for a while, we are studying through the first few chapters of Revelation in a series that we have entitled Seven, What the Spirit is Saying to the Churches. And uh, we're walking through the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and we've made our way to the fifth church that is addressed, the church of Sardis. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and open them to Revelation chapter three, and that is where we will be momentarily. Uh, before we jump in, uh, I just want to share something I've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks as we've been in the midst of this series. This series has once again encouraged me to stop and contemplate the importance and value of what Jesus has to say about his church. In contrast to how often we lead with our opinions of the church. 
As we've been walking through the study, we've been reminded that in regards to these churches in Revelation, that Jesus has some encouraging things to say, and he also has some hard things to say. We've also articulated that there are things that Jesus would, Jesus would have us consider all these years later in regards to the church. And I think that's been good for us because what Jesus has to say about the church is definitely worth processing and following in a culture, even a church culture, that has tons and opinions, has tons of opinions and critique of the church. Because when we stop and listen in, we discover that what Jesus says about the church and what we're oftentimes critiquing and holding opinions on in regards to the church are at times really different. I was recently reminded of a quote from the Screwtape Letters. If you aren't familiar, Screwtape Letters is a Christian apologetic novel by C.S. Lewis. It was published back in 1942, fictional in format, but the plot and characters are used to address some great theological issues, primarily those uh, having to do with temptation and the resistance to it. The story takes the form of a series of letters from a senior demon by the name of Screwtape to his nephew who goes by the name Wormwood. He's a, uh, what they call a junior tempter. He's trying to rise up in the ranks of tempting people. Here's the quote. Screwtape talking to his nephew Wormwood. Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy, Jesus, wants him to be a pupil. A connoisseur of churches And in our context, cultural context, it typically goes like this. Well, I was at a church for a while and then I moved on because I didn't feel like I was getting fed anymore. I felt like I needed to move on from the church. I didn't really connect with the music. Uh, I thought that the church was loving, but they didn't really offer enough things to satisfy my spiritual interests. I needed to move on from this church because they weren't diverse enough. Or I decided to leave my church because there weren't enough people like me. I I don't have much in common with them. And no matter how committed we may be to the church, I think at times, I know this is true of me, that we're all prone to carry the connoisseur of church's mindset. And please hear me, I don't know all of your backgrounds, I'm not saying we shouldn't have an opinion of the church or that we shouldn't be careful to critique her and our role in loving and caring for her. But possibly, at times, what we think of her and speak over her rises from a place of personal consumerism or limited perspective. And I know this is true for a lot of us in the room, myself included, that we have a lot of baggage, a lot of us, when it comes to the church. And for some of us, it's incredibly deep and difficult. But here's my gracious plea to us that we, as followers of Jesus, would be mindful of the opinions we hold over the church mindful of what we speak over the church, his church, and listen in and ask intentional questions of ourselves as Jesus shares his thoughts about his bride. And that's why 
Over the last couple of weeks, I was really loving the study. I believe these seven letters to these seven churches help us be mindful of the things that Jesus is mindful of. To think about the church the way that Jesus thinks about his church. To care for the church the way that Jesus cares for his church. To, to fight for the church the way he does. To value the church the way that he does. And these letters here in Revelation, they offer us the opinion of the one who knows exactly where these churches stand. He's the author, the architect, the perfecter, the sustainer of his bride. And what he's gonna say is we've been seeing, and we'll see it again this morning, I love this about you, I don't like these things taking place in your midst. So with that being said, I want us to look this morning at what Jesus has to say to the church at Sardis and contemplate what that means for us here at Fellowship Greenville. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'll give you a moment there in the quietness of your seat to pray a prayer. And you can use whatever words you would like, but the invitation would be this. Spirit of God, would you speak to me today through the word of God? Amen. All right, Revelation chapter three. I'm gonna read the, the first six verses and then we'll kind of walk through it together this morning. Here we go. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. So wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Verse three, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Verse four says, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. And the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, the letter uh, to the church of Sardis is the shortest of the seven messages. And uh, most weeks we've given a little bit of background so you understand a little bit more of what's going on in the cultural moment. The city of Sardis itself had a remarkable storied history. It was built on a mountain. It had an impressive Acropolis that was, according to legend, impossible to invade or overrun. More on that in a moment. It was wealthy and had been wealthy for centuries uh, due to its place as a center for woolen goods. It had a really large Jewish population. But one of the things that's interesting in all of this is that Sardis was a city that had actually peaked centuries before Jesus and before John ever penned this letter to the church there. Sardis had, had reached the apex of its political and military might in the sixth century BC. And while it was still wealthy, it was a shell of its former glory. So that means it was a significant city in the Roman province of Asia, but it wasn't an unusually important one like it had been back in the day when it served as the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia 
and it was vital to the Persian Empire. Now, it was just a pretty wealthy city, had an impressive Acropolis, and you could walk the streets of Sardis and hear the echoes of its former glory. It's just a shadow of what it had been. Now, I say all of that to help you understand the language that Jesus is using in the last half of verse one. Let's look back at that. It says, Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, here's what's really interesting. If you were there back then in their midst, you would not have said that the church of Sardis was a dead church because when you and I hear dead church, you might be thinking of a church that's dwindling in number or ready to close their doors because they can't afford to keep ministry going. But the truth is, the church of Sardis was a very active church. All types of events, all types of things were taking place to use the common language of church today. They had plenty of meetings and planning and strategizing and groups and committees with some good doctrine and the sacraments were being observed. As a matter of fact, Ready for this? Of all seven churches, Sardis was the largest church and the most affluent. Wealthy, full, yet dead, according to Jesus. And in these verses that we've read and we're gonna process through this morning, I think what we will see Jesus calling the church of Sardis to, which is also a great reminder for us, is this. Remain faithful in your confession of me in the world because I have promised to confess you as my own, both now and for eternity. Remain faithful in your confession of me in the world because I have promised to confess you as my own, both now and for eternity. You see, one of the things that I've been pondering this week as I've been studying is what has happened that this church in Sardis, a church so busy doing things that churches do, is actually dead. Our language that we would use today is a church full of nominal, in name only Christians. Why the need for Jesus to call them to faithfulness? Why did Jesus need to call them to making much of him in their sphere of influence? Now, as a reminder, we've said that the way Jesus introduces himself to these churches anticipates what he's going to say to them, and that's definitely the case here in Sardis. Jesus says this in the first half of verse one. We'll go back to that. Look back with, with me if you would. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So this introduction is actually very similar to the one that Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, if you'll recall, when Charlie walked through that with us at the beginning of Revelation 2. There in Ephesus, Jesus introduces himself this way. I want to read it to you. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. Remember that? And in Ephesus, they were reminded that Jesus was both present among and sovereign over his church. 
And that's what that introduction makes abundantly clear. He cares deeply about what's going on in the day-to-day life of his bride. In the church in Ephesus, the issue was that the church had grown committed to right theological doctrine at the exclusion of loving one another well and subsequently loving Christ well. And because of that, they had tarnished their witness to the world around them. And so that should actually be in our minds as we read this description of Jesus in this opening letter to Sardis. He has, verse one says, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The the seven stars, as we've seen already in this series, Revelation 120, lets us know that These are the angels of the churches and the seven spirits are representative of each church's witness to Christ to the world around them. They are lampstands and the seven spirits are like the flame in each lampstand, the light of Christ that the world around them can see. And so Jesus is letting the church at Sardis know I have every right to make the claim that I'm about to make because this is my church. And here's what I have to say to you. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I don't care what other people are saying about you, what your reputation is amongst yourselves. I don't care how many people you have coming to your services. I don't care how big your budget is. I don't care how many social media followers your church has. And they had a lot in Sardis back in the day. I don't care about that. People think that you're thriving, but you're like the Pharisees as Jesus described them in Matthew 23 where he said, you are whitewashed tombs. You look alive, but you're filled with bones and nothing else. Or as one author I was reading put it, the church at Sardis was like a beautifully adorned corpse in a funeral home, elegantly decked out in the visible splendor and fragrance of the most exquisite floral arrangement, set against the background of exquisite drapery, soft yet uplifting music playing, yet beneath the outward facade, death. And Jesus says, if you look back at verse two, Jesus says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So two different times in these few short verses that we've already read through this morning, Jesus says, wake up. I love that some of you just dozed off when I let that fly, jolted you a little bit, it's totally fine. Wake up really means keep on being watchful or be someone who is watchful. Jesus says you're dead because you aren't being watchful. I mentioned it a moment ago, but this call to wake up would have struck a chord with them in Sardis because in their history on two different occasions, there were surprise attacks on this city from within. A city that claimed to be impenetrable had people sneak in and then throw the doors open so that they could be attacked because those on guard were not vigilant. 
Wake up, be watchful. And then Jesus says, I've not found your works complete in the sight of God. And what does that mean? I believe Jesus is saying for all they're doing and for all their busyness, all their busyness of church things, is it possible that you actually aren't doing God's things? That they aren't living lives oriented to God's glory and to God's kingdom purposes? For all the church things you're doing, is it possible that you aren't actually being my witness in the place that I have put you to be my witness? Not complete means not doing the one thing I've called the church to do in the midst of all the things you are actually doing as a church. Make disciples and be a witness for me in this place. Because here's an interesting fact. Unlike the other churches we've looked at, Sardis was not under any pressure from the community. They weren't facing persecution. They were left alone. And Sardis, along with Laodicea, which we'll look at in a few weeks, they are the only two churches of the seven that receive, you ready for this? No commendation. No good thing from Jesus to be said about them. No encouragement, no praise to the largest, wealthiest, busiest doing the things of the church, church. So they have this reputation, which remember Jesus says in verse one, I know you have a reputation for being alive because you're so busy, but you're not. And there is this tension for them, which if we'll take time and think about it, might be a tension for some of us in the room, this tension between their reputation and their reality according to Jesus. And when if I think about the church in the West today, I mean, yeah, for sure. Cultural Christianity, yeah. Nominal Christianity, all day. And Jesus unpacks it even further for him. If you look at verses four and five, it'll be good for us to contemplate as well. This is what he says. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So, while there's not an encouraging word for the church, we do read here that there are a few, there's a couple in Sardis who are faithful to Christ in the midst of the church, but not the majority. Which is just an interesting reminder that Jesus knows. Whereas in our study over the past couple of weeks, in particular, when we looked at Pergamum and Thyatira, when we read through that, I think there was really the understanding that the issues within the church, the, if I want to use the word faulty members of the church, in those two churches, the faulty members of the church are actually in the minority of the church. But here in Sardis, the faithful are in the minority. The majority are dead. 
And again, here in verse four, we read more of Jesus' concern. He uses this word soiled. It's kind of the first clue. To be soiled or stained is used elsewhere in Revelation. And when it's used in other places, it's used to refer explicitly to being polluted by pagan influence, being polluted by idolatry. And so I think that allows us to get a little bit more of a snapshot of what's really happening in the church here. Many of them, the majority of them, most of them, had become soiled by attempting to keep a, what shall we say, low profile in their pagan context. Because again, they lived in a city in a culture that wasn't particularly interested in Christianity. We've seen that with all of the other churches. At times, people were open and hostile to the claims of Christ. We've seen that in the other churches. But it would appear and seem, according to what Jesus is saying here, the church at Sardis had attempted to keep their head down and stay out of the crosshairs of the world around them. Maybe, just maybe, by trying to participate just enough in the pagan rituals to avoid sideways looks or persecution. Thus, Jesus' desire that they remain faithful in their confession of him and the way that they're living their life and the place that he has put them because Jesus has promised to confess them as his own now and for all of eternity. And just on the wording here, so you know, this city acquired much of its wealth from the wool garment industry. And so the language that's used here as stained garments, like that would have evoked a powerful and present image in their minds. That which was prevalent in the city around them by trying to avoid conflict, by perhaps, you know, yeah, yeah, we'll burn a little incense for the emperor. We'll participate just a little bit in the pagan festivals. And in doing that, they had denied Christ. And that's the significance of what Jesus says in verse five. Look back there, it says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and Jesus promises to never blot his name out of the book of life and to confess his name before the Father and before the angels. There was this direct response to those who had refused to acknowledge Christ publicly by their words and by their actions. Thus showing, possibly, quite possibly, yes, possibly, that they actually had never knew Jesus. Maybe I could say it this way. They wanted the benefits of knowing Christ without the cost of knowing Christ. But is that even possible? They wanted the security of Christ without the comfort of being, with the comfort of being anonymous in the world. They wanted the confident assurance for their eternity without having to answer to the world, yeah, I'm with him. I follow Jesus. They were distancing themselves from Jesus and the implied message from Jesus here is that is to your own destruction. And I would say, for those of us in the room today, it would be to our detriment all these years later being a part of the church to not at least stop and ask ourselves some questions, right? If that is true of us in any way, and if so, in what ways? And what's the reason behind it? Do I desire the benefits of knowing Jesus without the cost of following Jesus? 
Do I want the security that is found in Jesus while intentionally or unintentionally walking through life totally okay with nobody knowing that I follow Jesus? How often in word and deed am I proclaiming, I'm with, I'm with him, I'm with Jesus. And that's why I began today like I did in a culture where everyone has an opinion about everything, including the church. What does Jesus have to say? to the church? What does Jesus ask us to consider? What does Jesus ask us to ponder? And if you look back at verse three, Jesus, there's this great call that he puts out to the church at Sardis, three things. Verse three says, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I'm gonna come like a thief and you won't know at what hour I will come against you. This language Jesus is saying, you are sleepwalking with your faith in Jesus. While being really busy, by the way, with church things. And abandoning the responsibility to point other people and go, I'm with Jesus, I'm with him. My life's about that. Come what may, I'm with Jesus. And so Jesus calls them to remember, to respond, and to repent. Here in verse three. There is this call to remember. Jesus is saying this when he says that. Jesus is saying, remember the hope of the gospel as you first received it. Hey church at Sardis, remember the joy and enthusiasm that came with knowing me the joy within you as you realize that you are my son, you are my daughter. Remember the beauty of recognizing that the God who created and sustains all things, who is bigger than our minds could ever begin to comprehend, somehow calls you his own. Remember the the power of the Spirit at work within you. Remember, remember, remember. Because if you wanna see true repentance, which again is not simply saying I'm sorry, but actually turning and going the opposite direction of where you are going, then the only lasting motivation is to remember who God is, who I am because of Jesus. It is gospel-motivated remembering that in his kindness leads to repentance. And we read here that it's not just a remembering for the sake of remembering, it's actually an active remembering because Jesus tells them what? He says to keep it, like that's the response. I want you to remember and I want you to keep it. I want you to respond in light of your remembering with an action. That's gospel motivated life change. There it is, it's all over the pages of scripture, I like to point it out when I can. It's here, even with the church of Sardis. Let your lives demonstrate that you remember well who I am and what it is that I've done for you and who you are in me because of what I've done for you. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Remember, respond, remember, respond, remember, respond, remember, keep it, remember, keep it, remember, keep it. Because there is this hope, and I hope you hear it today. 
It's really interesting to hear how we've had a lot of different conversations with people as we've been walking through uh, Revelation and these letters. It's really interesting. Talk to different people and they kind of hear different things and that's the Spirit's doing however the Spirit wants to lead in that, right? But I hope you hear the hope even in this call. It's not hopeless in Sardis. Obviously, we've already read that there are some who are faithful. And the call here, even though it is to those who Jesus says, you're dead, it's clear that not all is lost. Otherwise, he wouldn't be calling them to repent. It's very kind of him. And at the same time that there's this call, there's this warning that you got to do something with. I think Jesus is re-articulating what he has said back in Matthew chapter 24. It says this, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let the house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Jesus is saying to the church of Sardis, I will not be mocked. Remember and respond and repent. Remember and respond and repent. Because what you might discover is you actually never knew him. Which for me leads me to go, okay, what about us? How do we contemplate what Jesus had to say to this large, wealthy, busy, yet dead church at Sardis? Is it possible, I'm gonna throw it out there. Is it possible, even likely, that we as followers of Jesus would be confronted with the temptation because of the world that we live in to deny Jesus? And listen, maybe not outright, but by living with a lack of distinction in our lives or living with a misplacement of our confidence. Maybe I can state it this way. I think the temptation is great for us to live very much in the same manner as the world around us. That temptation sits there every day with no gospel-motivated distinction in the decisions that we make, our gospel-motivated distinction in the way we spend our resources, or how we approach our jobs, or how we engage our families, or what our priorities demonstrate about what we value the most in life, or how we treat other people. Because as a follower of Jesus, you know this, I know this, as a follower of Jesus, all of those things speak volumes about how we view Jesus and how we value Jesus. I'm with him. I follow him. Because if if our life is filled with things that we value more than Jesus, folks see that. Who sees that? Who you work with, they see it. Who you go to school with, they see it. Your neighbors see it. Your family members see it. And just like the church at Sardis, with the exception of a few faithful ones, the light of our claim as Christians will dim. And if you go, man, Jason, that actually is me today, what would you say to me? Remember, respond in keeping with repentance. 
Be reminded of who you are in Jesus. What God has made possible for you. That he loves you. And from that place, obey him. It's the only lasting motivation for true life change. And here's what I know. I know that it's easy at times to be quickly dismissive when questions are being posed in a message. That's not me, that's not us, that's not my issue, that's not my struggle. But I really appreciate how author Daryl Johnson posed this question, which is another opportunity to consider what we've been talking about this morning. Such a good question, here it is. What place does Jesus occupy in my life? What place does Jesus occupy in my life? And to help you unpack that a little more, here's some questions that go with the question. What places does Jesus occupy in my thinking? What place does Jesus occupy in my feelings? What place does Jesus occupy when I dream about the future? What place does Jesus occupy in my planning of said future? What place does Jesus occupy in how I spend resources? What place does the crucified Jesus occupy? For you. What place does the resurrected Jesus occupy for you? What place does the returning Jesus occupy for you? Not on Sunday morning for a few minutes when we're studying, although definitely then. In the everydayness of your life, day in, day out, the decisions, life comes at you fast, they say. What place does Jesus occupy? I'll read it again. I just need to spend a moment on it because you might have some questions about it, and that's fair. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Really quickly, and you can do a lot of reading on this, you do a lot of studying on it. But I'll say this this morning, because I don't know your background, a lot of you. That verse is not Jesus changing his mind about you. It's not, even though some have used it for a springboard to let people know they can lose their salvation, that's actually not the case here. He doesn't say that he'll blot it out. He says he never will. It's a promise that nothing will ever by any means, he uses a double negative there, (laughs) nothing will ever prevent those of us that have trusted Jesus from eternal life with Jesus. It's actually a promise of security, both now and for forever. Here, and I know we've said it, I'll say it again. Throughout these seven letters, Jesus continues to use this phrase, the one who conquers. And some of you, based on your background, think that that phrase means, man, I hope it really works out for you. I don't like your chances all that much, to be honest with you. But really, that is future tense language to help these churches and us understand our present tense hope. Our only hope to be conquerors is to look to Jesus, the one who has conquered sin and death for us. What does that mean? It means if you sit here today and you have a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, I'm with him. 
It means in Jesus you are known. It means in Jesus you are cherished. It means that your name is confessed before the God of the universe by Jesus as righteous and holy and belonging to him. And in the midst of the fear-inducing news that we see every day, in the midst of our wandering hearts being drawn towards things or systems or beliefs or people to place our confidence in, things that lead us away from and not towards Jesus, in the midst of wondering what the future is gonna look like for me and at the age I am now, even more so for my daughters, in the midst of a world that offers far more questions than answers, in the midst of all that, I can think of no greater reason to have hope in this life than to know that I am known and I am claimed by Jesus Christ. And if you sit here today and you go, I don't, I don't know that, I wanna talk with you. There's people here that wanna talk with you because there is no hope without the hope. Think about this with me as we conclude our time today. We started this morning, I said, to summarize Jesus' challenge to the church of Sardis. It would be, remain faithful in your confession of me in the world because I have promised to confess you as my own both now and for eternity. The promise of Jesus, I will confess your name before my father and before his angels it's not, listen, it's not just that Jesus constantly intercedes on your behalf currently, he does. But here, the passage we've looked at this morning, Jesus hearkens back to what he had said in the gospels. In Matthew 10, 32, Jesus had said, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. And in Luke 12, eight, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. So please hear me, there is a day coming when Jesus with joy will stand before God the Father and all the angels of heaven and proclaim that you are with him. Not begrudgingly, not with an eye roll or a disapproving head shake, but with joy and boldness, he is mine she belongs to me. They are worthy because they're in me. And you know what else? It'll be your name that he proclaims. Your name. If you know him, that's what Jesus says here. I will confess his name, Jesus says. It's not going to be like a teacher taking roll before a class. Bueller, Bueller. Here, I'm in the bank. It's not a ritual. It's not getting through a list of names like a high school or college graduation program. If you could all hold your applause here in heaven until we get through the entire list, that would be fantastic. If you blow a horn, we'll haul you out of here. It's not that. As a matter of fact, let's do this. Let's conclude this way. I want you to bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. I want you to use your imagination. I acknowledge that's easier for some of us than others. There you are, 
standing in the presence of a holy, immeasurable, all-consuming God. And you're reminded once again of your smallness, your weakness, your frailness. And then someone walks up beside you and it's Jesus. And he takes you by the hand and he walks you before the Father. And with all the angels of heaven looking on, Jesus with joy and boldness says, Father, go ahead and insert your name. Father, Jason is mine, and I am his. He is clothed in white because I have paid his debt. I have suffered his penalty. And he is clean, and he is pure, and he is righteous because he's with me. Now look at me for a moment. That's gonna happen as sure as I'm standing here. I don't know what plays out exactly like all the things I just did there. So for as many days as he gives us before we stand there, may we be a church, may we be a people, may we be a people who make up a church that live lives of divine distinction, that say day in and day out in the everydayness of my life and all the decisions that I'm making, I'm with him. Would you pray with me? Father God, for the opportunity to open up the word this morning, I thank you for your commitment to share with us what you think of your bride, I thank you. May we hold that so much more closely. Than our opinions that often come from a consumeristic mindset and a limited perspective. May we be a people who are quick to make much of you in the places that you have us. Father God, may it not be said of us that we're a large, wealthy, busy, yet dead church. And for any of us here today who in this moment, the spirit of God through the word of God, because we prayed that at the beginning of our time today, that the spirit would speak through the word, that the spirit might be saying through the word, these are areas of your life where there is not congruence. There are areas of your life where there's not divine distinction. And I want to encourage you to walk in that divine distinction because it is your testimony. It is your witness. 
any of us with any things, may we remember, may we respond and acknowledge it as your kindness that leads us to repentance. May we remember the hope of the gospel. May we keep it, keep the hope of the gospel because it's the only thing that motivates true lasting life change. And we will thank you for it. In Jesus' sweet name we pray, amen.